Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to The Independent's Coronavirus Podcast. I'm David Marley, Deputy Editor at The Independent. This podcast is about getting behind the headlines, drilling down into the issues that are affecting our lives as we try to navigate our way through these extraordinary times. As we are only too well aware, the NHS has been put under massive strain in coping with the many thousands of people needing life-saving treatment for COVID-19. And at the forefront of that effort is, of course, the doctors, nurses and other staff who put their own health at risk to go on the medical front lines each day. We have seen the government put under repeated pressure to explain why they have failed to hit targets for testing, particularly for NHS staff, and why, weeks after it was promised, some hospitals are still reporting shortages of personal protective equipment. So what is life like for medical staff coping with this unprecedented crisis? Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Sarah Hart, an anaesthetist and intensive care doctor at a South London hospital, to give us her insight into the battle against coronavirus. Hello, Sarah, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I'm sure your downtime is incredibly precious, so I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Hi there. Uh, Thank you for wanting to talk to me. I don't actually have too much else to do on days off, so this is a nice little uh, interlude. If you could start by just explaining and describing what your role is and what your general day-to-day experience is in treating patients with coronavirus. So my general role is to... Uh, go to work in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, take or eight o'clock in the evening, depending what day of the night or time we're doing, um, take handover from the the opposing team and then go and see the patients. The hospital that I'm working in at the moment normally has a relatively small intensive care, but has managed to triple its capacity because of this current epidemic in the UK, um, which meant that it also needed to triple its staff and triple its level of equipment. The way it went about doing that was by initially taking all the doctors who had any intensive care experience whatsoever in the hospital, putting them onto the rotor, and then going and getting more from everywhere else in the hospital. So I was meant to be doing anaesthetics, which is uh, got lots of similarities to intensive care and lots of overlap, and a lot of doctors do both. Um, however, at the, that time, I was meant to be just doing anaesthetics. So they reconfigured all the rotors for all the doctors, all the junior, all the non-consultant grade doctors, and have put us onto a permanent um, 12 and a half hour rolling rotor so that they were able to actually provide the staff that they needed. Um, so we do that, go see the patients, um, do the routine care that we would normally do in intensive care. So check all the small things that make a difference and then also see new patients as and when that's required. So from, from, from a layman's point of view, when, when we're thinking about coronavirus and intensive care, we're obviously hearing, hearing lots of uh, discussion about ventilators and whether there are enough ventilators. So your, your, one of your main roles is to, is to intubate 
patients to make sure that their lungs are getting enough oxygen or that they can cope with the virus as they're trying to fight against it. That's true, but it's also a lot more than that. Um, so it's, it's been quite entertaining seeing my day job being discussed in the media. So the first time I know what it's like when people talk about things when I'm like, I mean, it's not, not quite right, but we'll go with that. So intensive care is a, a very interesting specialty. The, the general reason patients get admitted to intensive care is because one aspect of their body is failing or more, one or more aspects and requires a certain level of intervention. So organ support whether that's um, respiratory support, so intubation, ventilation, cardiac support, so certain drugs to try and help support the heart, um, renal replacement therapy for patients who, for example, have got acute or chronic kidney impairment, um, and the list goes on and on and on. What we're seeing at the moment in um, the patients with COVID-19 infections is they have primarily um, severe respiratory failure, they are also getting a high instance of renal impairment. And subsequently, there's also um, evidence that they're getting neurology impairment as well. So confusion, delirium. Well, that's a little bit later in presentation because we aren't seeing, we haven't quite got to that stage yet. But the management of patients with that obviously involves, you're right, the intubation ventilation. So we give them an anesthetic, put them to sleep, give them the drugs to maintain that um, medical induced coma and then take over the breathing for them, which means we need to take over every other function for them. We need to take over their feeding, we need to take over their cleaning, we need to take over their temperature control and all the medications that go with that. So it's actually a really complex process for a disease that we actually have very little understanding of because it's entirely novel. And that's been, I think, without question, the hardest part in all of this is that we're learning something every day. And so every day you take two or three days off, you come back and there's been a new change or a new development. And the research is all going on concurrently to try and find out what's going on. Um, and the patients are also really interestingly taking much, much longer to recover than we would normally see in patients who have a primary respiratory problem. So every single aspect of our care for a disease has had to be rethought. And then on top of that, we've got the sheer numbers and the fact that we have to do all of that whilst wearing personal protective equipment, which makes it much more tricky. So you're, before coronavirus hit, the intensive care unit where you would work, how many, how many patients would that have typically had on at, at any one time? So in terms of bed space, maybe 10 to 11 beds. Of those, maybe three or four would actually be critically ill. The rest would either be sort of recovering or maybe we're worried they were going to get ill or they had less severe but requiring a bit more intensive care um, than the ward would be able to provide. Now, all of those patients where we've tripled the capacity are what we would call level three, so the high acuity, the sickest patients. And they're all staying at that level for many, many days, if not weeks. And they've all got coronavirus and it's bizarre because we've gone from having 10 to 11 patients who've got things that are wrong with them to now only having two or three who have something other than coronavirus and we're trying to protect those like nobody's business to make sure they don't get it while being in hospital as well and that's quite a challenge from every aspect it does also make us wonder where everyone else has gone which i worry about so you do have some non-coronavirus patients on these intensive care wards with coronavirus patients yeah well so the way we do it is and it varies across hospital and it varies purely based on infrastructure and what you're actually able to do. The planning has been incredible in the trusts that I've worked in. I can't believe they've been able to do what they've been able to do. And I've seen that in quite a lot of different intensive cares across London where they've managed to 
build new walls or restructure things and make new entirely new areas to facilitate these intensive care beds being in the, the sort of the volume of everything being increased we the way the process works is when you go in to see these patients you need to don your ppe and that needs to be done in a way which you can then safely access the area with the covid patients without contaminating the donning area so we have sort of like stop gaps so you go through a room you then put on your equipment you then close that door and open another door before you go into the patients the, the room with the coronavirus patients in so we've managed to create three areas like that now and but within that there's also side room areas where they've turned bays that aren't for patients with coronavirus so we can try and keep them separate so we've seen pictures of um, of the PPE, so the kind of masks, the kind of quite tight-fitting masks and the visors that, that you're wearing, gowns and gloves. What What is it like? How difficult is it to do your job when you're wearing that full kit? So very difficult for a numerous amount of reasons, or a number of reasons. So firstly, in terms of recognising who's who. So not only have the poor nursing staff been inundated with new doctors who they don't know because they've not previously worked in their intensive care, they're also covered in masks, so no one knows who anyone is, which is why we started taking to writing names on our hats and putting stickers on our bad visors and things like that to try and communicate who's who. Um, in addition, we have um, surgical hats on to try and stop the, corona the, the virus going into our hair, um, and that covers our ears a bit. We then put a mask on and then a visor on top of that. So it's really difficult to hear, and it's not only because your voice is being muffled, but because your ears are covered, and that makes it much more tricky for the first few weeks i regularly come home with a sore throat and i kept thinking oh god is this it and then i realized it was just because i was shouting really loudly at work all day but then you feel rude as well because it feels like you're shouting to people when you're not trying to shout at people you're just trying to make it because on top of that it's also a very noisy background there's lots of alarms lots of bleeps lots of people trying to communicate and so that's been a challenge in addition it's really hot and really sweaty you, I really had to up my game when it comes to being very careful about taking fluids, then going into the unit and then making sure that you don't need the toilet too quickly because you don't want to have to be wasteful of PPA and come out and come back in again. Um, and so therefore trying to do things as quickly and as efficiently as you can. Um, and it's also, again, tactile things. There's a lot of procedures that we do involve feeling things. So, for example, feeling a patient's pulse through a pair of gloves at the moment we're trying to do that through three pairs of gloves which is almost impossible so again you have to change the approach you do to try and achieve what you want to achieve how, how long would you would you out of your shift how long would you spend on on the ward because if you if it's so difficult to kind of come and go because you have to kind of derobe and then hmm. put the pp back on are you do you basically try to stay on the ward as much as possible so usually on an intensive care unit the you would sit on the unit if you didn't have anything to do you'd just sit at the desk um so you could be there to micromanage all the small little problems that can happen with the patients when um it comes to uh, corona times it's much more tricky because you it's just physically impossible to stay in that for too long you get thirsty you get hot you get uncomfortable one of the masks i wore at one point made me feel really really itchy and i just my face felt like it was on fire so i had to leave Generally, they, they say that masks only actually provide suitable protection for a couple of hours. That duration varies depending which manufacturer you listen to. I think the maximum I stayed in PPE probably at one time is maybe four to five hours. 
usually it's maybe two hours or so I try and make sure that I plan what I need to do before I then come out so you have to be really strict about making sure that you know what you need to go in with and ringing people to ask to bring in extra stuff if needed so you don't go in and out all the time um and I'm also really careful at making sure that the entire team knows that they can go out when they need to the doctors as a general rule I think are a little bit luckier in this situation because we do not only get to go to the wards to see patients who don't require intensive care which makes us realize that not everyone is terribly sick from this but we also have to go to different to see different patients have to leave to go to different areas of the hospital to or different areas of the intensive care unit so we get a bit more of a break whereas the nursing staff are in there for longer and also the way that their care and their structure of the day works is they get allocated normally in intensive care one patient in the, the COVID-19 units, they're getting allocated maybe up to four patients sometimes with a non-intensive care nurse assisting them, which is an unbelievable strain on their resources and their ability to do their job well. And on top of that, they're standing there in plastic gowns and plastic gloves and masks and visors and hats, and it's much more tricky to do what you would normally want to do. And they, the way, obviously, we've tried to create all these extra bed spaces is by making the physical space smaller so where you'd normally have a room with one patient we've made that a two bed bay or in an area where there's normally be 10 beds we're squeezing in 15 which means that instead of having a nice two meter walking area around the patients to be able to turn them to be able to care for them clean them do the lines the procedures whatever it is you'd normally do you're doing that in half a meter space so you're climbing over and knocking things and coming home covered in bruises but i suppose that's part of the job so we're used to that Everything you're saying sounds incredibly difficult and, and stressful and, I mean, just a, a kind of tremendous kind of burden to, to have to undertake every day, obviously for the, for the very best of reasons. How do you, how are you kind of coping with that? Is there a lot of anxiety amongst the staff? Obviously, you know, the, physically it's very challenging, but you are obviously all aware that you're putting your own health at risk by, by treating these patients. Um, how how are you coping with that? How is that making you feel? How is that making wider wider members of staff feel? I think for me personally, I was very I was lucky for a few things. Firstly, I was able to see what the Italians were saying weeks before this came to the UK, and I think most of our intensive care um, colleagues in the UK saw it coming and prepared for it much more so than the government necessarily was um, doing at the time. Um, and I not only prepared myself, I prepared my family. So I knew that the one thing that I would need to keep going through this is to know that I didn't need to worry about anyone else. So my poor mum's been locked away for weeks and weeks and weeks, <laughs> thinking and to the extent that her friends were sort of almost teasing her for it. So that was a good relief. And my dad's been doing the same. Um, I, on the other hand, from my... I, I actually, mid-March, I got really fed up before the lockdown was introduced on the Monday, that weekend before, I was with some friends and got very, very angry that it felt like nobody was listening. And you could see this crisis coming and I could see what was happening at work. And I, I got a bit upset then. And then I realised it was just because I actually, well, I was a bit sleep deprived because I've been doing nights, but also I think I'm a bit more of a doer and I just needed to actually start doing something. And ever since then, I, and since I've been at work, it's not been a problem. Um, but that's because I think I've been trained to do this. I feel quite lucky that I am trained to do anaesthetics intensive care. I'm trained to look after critically ill patients and I've got all the practical skill set that I would need to do that. 
I feel more sorry for the people who've been drafted into the intensive care because especially nursing staff, the nursing staff normally would have at least a six week grace period where they wouldn't be left unattended with a patient. They would all be supernumerary and they have to do an extensive training course to become fully qualified intensive care nurses. Um, and instead they've just been drafted in from the wards where they have done a nursing degree, but it's entirely different being a trained nurse to being trained to manage all the very complex equipment. And then in addition, the intensive care nurses are trained in certain equipment and we've gone and had to get equipment from all sorts of odd places to try and meet the demand, which means that they're dealing with stuff in that they've equipment they've never dealt with in an entirely unfamiliar area in full PPE with a completely new disease. So it's a perfect storm really to really impact people's mental health because in addition, one of the things I think nursing staff and intensive care are wonderful at is uh, communicating with families and explaining what's going on to the families and dealing with end of life care in a really noble way. And they're not able to do any of that. It's all been completely taken away. And that's unbelievably difficult because you can't really communicate in the way you would want to. Um, as well as the fact that a lot of the patients are healthcare workers, which is really, in fact, the first patient we had recover was a uh, colleague. And that, I think, was something that all of us re recognised at the time as something we would need to cling on to and remember in the weeks to come because we knew it was going to get quite um, hard. So, and that's that be, carried on seeing that. That must be a very, a very tough thing to deal with, to see medical colleagues in that situation, presumably having contracted, or, um, contracted the virus or potentially having contracted the virus in a medical setting and you know that you're kind of dealing with those kinds of patients as well every day oh without question that again from a nursing staff point of view it's even worse because they're only seeing that i've seen several patients who are healthcare professionals who haven't required intensive care and come into hospital need oxygen for a few days go home um yeah it's it's really hard it's, it's been really interesting across london though because we've had a incredible setup of um, support between all the different hospitals because of the the varying local populations to hospitals in London different hospitals have had different uh, peaks in their patients turning up and the way that that's been supported with the larger hospitals receiving patients and smaller hospitals taking patients back at different times depending on the bed um, the bed spaces and the flow of patients um, has meant that actually quite a lot of our healthcare professionals patients have moved to different hospitals but we have been able to follow up and heard that some of our patients who were slowly improving have actually done quite well and have actually been extubated which is essential to see because we don't see that very often mm. um yeah it's hard it's a really it's odd it's odd dealing with something that we've never dealt with before and it's odd it's some there's been a couple of times where i've had a feeling of hopelessness of that what we were doing was futile that we were keeping people alive for weeks and they seemed entirely static and by static, I meant statically looking like they were about to die every day, um, but still not quite dying. And then actually eventually some are turning the corner and we're only now reaching that point. However, we are still seeing people coming in and dying very quickly and that's heartbreaking. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think one of the one of the things that the, the government uh, Matt Hancock announced was to to change the rules around whether um, patients' families could come in to see patients if they if if the medical kind of consensus was that that patient was going to die. And I think that the idea that these patients are there and their families can't visit them. And we had a case, wasn't there, um, maybe a few weeks ago now of a young boy who had died alone, which is just absolutely heartbreaking kind of story to hear. But that kind of goes back to your point about how difficult it is because part of your job obviously is, is in, in normal times, is to talk to families and to make sure they understand what's happening to, you know, the, their, their loved yeah. ones and, and, and kind of how their treatment is going. And, and on occasion, unfortunately, having to talk to them about, you know, the, the, you know that those, their, their, their loved ones, their family are not going to recover. And yet you don't, can't have that personal contact with, with patients' families. No, completely. And it is. It's really hard. I think that um, we've had a couple of patients who we knew were going to die, who we have managed to get their um, husband or wife to come in and wear the full protective gear and be at the bedside. And personally, I think that is essential for um, bereavement. That If you aren't able to physically see someone in that state to know that everything was tried it's almost like and I've seen this a few times people come into hospital and the next thing you know two weeks later or however long later the family just told they're dead and they, they don't see anything that's happened in between they get someone who rings them and gives them updates as often as we physically can at least usually once if not twice a day but that's not the same as physically sitting by the bedside and seeing what the nursing staff are doing and I think that what as a nation is going to be something that's going to be very difficult to deal with in the months to come because it's so widespread and it's happening in hospitals it's happening in care homes it's happening even as well with people who are dying at home from unrelated causes but without people being able to visit them and that's really tough yeah um i i sometimes think it's it's hard to believe that we've only really been in this situation for a month or two it feels like it's been going on for, for a long time um, but the, the, you know, the government strategy, which you know, so far appears to be to be working, this idea of flattening the curve so that intensive care units are not overwhelmed by patients, that seems to be um, being successful at the moment. But has the uh, effect that this could go on for many more months to come, with um, with doctors such as yourself, um, you know, having to deal with it, with a, a stream of, unfortunately, a stream of coronavirus patients. Um, over many many months to come so how does that how, how are the how are you how are nursing staff how are the medical staff prepared for this kind of long long period where we have to have to deal with this and what are the kind of risks of the staff burning out over that period it must be it must be a real concern from the very beginning when we redesigned our rotors in order to surge the staff care for intensive care 
we uh, sort of resilience was absolutely key and recognizing that that in our rolling rotor we've got roughly three days on three days off three days on three days off and then there is a seven day gap where we get seven days off altogether which is i think really important for resilience and making sure people reset not that there's much we can do in the seven days off but at least there's sort of that option to completely decompress it's it's tough and it will get tougher when we start you 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 get patients you get attached to for different reasons um i had a patient recently who said that uh asked me if she was going to die and said she didn't want to die and then she unfortunately died um a few days after we had that conversation um that sort of thing i think if you forget it or if it doesn't affect you you probably shouldn't be doing the job anymore because the idea of not being able to have the empathy for your patients is quite bad if you want to be able to carry on being a compassionate and thoughtful doctor you need to consider that and all that's done is reinforce my personal practice which is to ensure that before i um anesthetize and intubate any patient i make them have some sort of contact with their loved ones whether that's to send a message or to leave a voicemail or to do something so that that family member knows what's going on if you look to the future what what other um what other knock-on effects do you think this this may have there are lots of patients who um would have been expecting to come into hospital for elective treatment we've mm-hmm. heard um concerns that perhaps cancer patients and other sick people are not going to get the treatment that they need or that other people who perhaps have illnesses and not going to hospital for fear of um, overwhelming the NHS and just want to stay away and then that potentially causing problems as well. So as you look to the look to the future, what, what are the kind of wider impacts do you think um, of COVID? Well, uh, what you said and more, I think that it was one of the things I was getting very frustrated about in the beginning of March, that we weren't cancelling all elective surgeries and front-loading that theatre time that we had with um, cancer patients. If we'd done that for even two weeks, we would have saved across the country several thousand more lives for those surgeries that are now not happening. I think there's a lot of work going on. I saw in the news about London Bridge Hospital today potentially being a place that they were going to start doing uh, cancer surgeries, which I don't know the details about that at all, but that sort of planning seems sensible and prudent. Um, I think the knock-on nationally will be a increase in mortality because of patients who have not gone to A&E because they didn't want to cause trouble when they were actually having a heart attack or an asthma attack or something else life-threatening. So the sort of direct obvious causes where patients have got a secondary severe life-threatening disease and they've not seek medical help. Um, The secondary impacts are the patients with um, what we would normally call the priority the things that would get your two-week waits, so for example, your cancer patients not getting their surgery, not getting their chemotherapy, radiotherapy because of the immunosuppression, all of those will. I mean, and, and I, I saw someone on the news a few weeks ago actually saying, "Why is my life not as important? It's just because I don't have this." And you kind of go, "Yeah, it's a very fair point." Um, and in addition, have you seen in the news about the domestic violence increases and all of that? I think is going to be very hard. And I think as a country that will take many years to recover from fully, as well as the economic impact. Oh God, it's never ending, isn't it? Um, From an NHS point of view, I think that staff resilience will eventually be affected. And whether this makes people want to leave the NHS and leave healthcare potentially, depending how they personally feel affected by the situation. 
I don't know. I can't really speak for other people. I think for me, it just reinforces that I'm feel lucky that I'm in a situation where I can do something to help. Do you think that the support is there for staff? I mean, as you say, the NHS has done a done a, <clears throat> a very good job of reorganising things, and it has a, a very pressing situation to deal with. But it also needs to make sure it's looking after its staff. So, do you think the the support is there? Is there kind of the, the counselling or, or, or the mental health support that to, to help people get through? It's one hundred percent there. I think in um, so going back sort of 10, 15 years ago, uh, anaesthetics as a specialty had quite a high suicide rate. And so there was a lot of work done um, up until entirely unrelated to this about mental health of um, doctors and especially those working in anaesthetics and intensive care. So a lot of the systems were already in place and those have just been ramped up. I get daily emails about, do you need help? Contact this person. This is a wellbeing centre, this number for a helpline. And then also personal emails from my supervisors saying, just checking you're okay. Let me need you to know if you need anything. Um, as well as the feeling of the members of the public. I, it's, I have to say, I thought the uh, clap for the NHS thing was exceptionally trite when I first heard the idea. And now every Thursday, I love it because I get to meet my neighbours. And I've, I've never really met half my neighbours before. And now every week we go in the street and have a little clap. We've decided we're going to start having drinks parties when a street party, when this is all over, so we can actually get to know each other properly. Um, and from friends and family, I've had some unbelievably cute friends email me and um, post me things. I've just had chocolates turn up on my doorstep and some, I had some gingerbread doctors uh, turn up yesterday, which are very lovely. Um, but I think probably most importantly, family and my boyfriend, who does the same job as me, has been has been invaluable having someone around who knows exactly what we're doing and how to talk about it and how to realise what's going on. Um, as well, oh God, there's an endless amount of stuff. The free food that has been provided to the NHS um, has been something I've probably got accustomed to a little bit too quickly <laughs> and is amazing. Yeah, good. <laughs> can't get too comfortable with it though. I can't, I can't not ask you about um, the issue of PPE. It's obviously been one of the most controversial um, elements so far with hospital staff not getting all of the PPE that they necessarily need. What's the situation been, been, been for you? So for me personally, I have never had to enter a COVID unit or treat a coronavirus patient without the adequate PPE. However, that PPE has been a whole range of different things. I've probably worn about five to six different types of gowns and visors and masks. Um, depending on the stock and the flow and the amount of different stuff available at different sites. I think that there was a little bit of controversy about the testing for the fit testing. We ensure that the masks fit particular faces. Um, I got fit tested on two separate masks at the beginning of all of this and it was entirely um, well-timed and appropriate and there was plenty of resources available but then those masks were out of stock so you start wearing other masks and Personally, I'm aware that I've got a relatively generic face, so most things seem to fit. Um, so I feel okay with that. And there's a lot of support for staff who say, no, that isn't my mask, therefore I can't do this. Um, in intensive care, as a general rule, we tend to get, um, we get to cherry pick equipment. And as a general rule, they know that we've got the most aerosol generating procedures, which are what are deemed the most high risk. Therefore, the staff need this protection. And so I've not had any times where I've not been able to safely care for a patient because of that. 
don't get me wrong, there's definitely times where you get to the donning station and there's no masks, there's no hats, there's no whatever, but you go to the, some hidden office and imaginable supply reappears from somewhere. I think that as a country, it's been slowly addressed. I think the hospitals in London probably have been better prepared than others outside. And I wonder if what we saw in the news was a non-London non hospital sort of catching up to the curve with what London's been seeing for a few weeks. But I think the bigger problem is not for acute care of patients, it's without question in the community, for patients doing uh, care workers and for nursing homes and residential homes. And I think that is going to be a big hidden um, cost to the community and to the NHS and to the population. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through all that. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and thank you for everything that you're doing every day on the front lines to help us through all of this. Um, obviously, we are all relying on doctors and nurses like you and many others to, to get us through. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you uh, to, uh, to our listeners for listening. If you're a new listener, please subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. Uh, if you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, do get in touch on email at the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk or you can use the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast, that's I-N-D-Y, Coronavirus Podcast, and we'll see your post. Uh, you can read all about the unfolding news on our website, independent.co.uk, and in our downloadable Daily Edition app. And there's also an email newsletter you can sign up to if you want the latest news and advice delivered to your inbox. Thanks so much again for listening, and please join us again next time.